Hey guys, you're getting ready to hear an interview with Timothy Stevens. He's with Spectrograph Films. He has got a movie that's coming out. He's already filmed all of it. You'll hear about all that as we go, plus some very cool stories that he's got to tell about uh, some things that happened on the set. But he's got this movie called The Ghost Lights. It's based on the, the Marfa Lights out in Texas. He's going to need a little help along the way. Uh, he's got the whole movie shot, but but uh, part of what he's doing is trying to get donations in exchange for some cool things from the movies like props and posters and stuff like that to help get the finished product out. And this trailer for this actually looks really well. When you hear the interview and you hear how little the cost was to, and how few people they used, you're probably going to think, oh man, this doesn't look like much. When you go to watch the trailer, which it will be in a link um, on the show notes here, and I'll post it in the uh, on the website and everything too. You can go check it out, but man, I'm telling you, this thing is top notch. But I wanted you to know that the link for the Indiegogo is going to be in the show notes. We'll put it in the Facebook group. I'll put it on the Facebook page. But uh, go check it out. Watch the trailer. I think you're going to be impressed. Hey guys, I got a special guest with you. I've got uh, Timothy Stevens with me, and Timothy. You have a, a movie that's coming out. You're, you're going to need a little bit of help on, on raising some funds, and we've done that before on here with a couple of, uh, of other friends of ours. We're glad to be able to be of a little bit of a help. So tell me a little bit about the movie The Ghost Lights. Timothy Stevens here, and once again, thank you for having me on the podcast. Really excited. The Ghost Lights is, is my first feature film. Um, I've been doing shorts for 10 years, something like that. Always in the horror, definitely like paranormal strangeness. You know, I'm a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft. So this movie really falls kind of in into that, that whole world. Yeah, we shot it in 10 days in October with a crew of about four or five people. And that was kind of cost related. I paid for a production out of my own pocket, but it was also COVID related. We wanted to keep as few people in the same room because it's a road trip film. So we're in cars together and we're, we're in confined spaces. So we all got tested and we just didn't see anybody for 10 days. But it, it really, it was kind of insane. It was a whirlwind. Most films shoot like 20 days minimum. You know, some shoot like 60 and they have crews of like 10 to 30 to 100 people. So this was like true, like indie filmmaking down to the bones, you know. You know, like I was saying, it, it really does reflect my interest in the paranormal. And the, the story is based on the Marfa lights, which is a true phenomena in Marfa, Texas, that we can talk about later. The essential story is that a journalist grew up in, in Dallas, DFW area, went off to New York City to work for a magazine. She comes home after the death of her father, who is also a journalist and kind of her inspiration. As she's going through his house, which is now mostly empty, she finds this mysterious cassette tape labeled The Ghost Lights, October 15th, 1978. And uh, she finds a tape player and she sits in this abandoned house puts in the headphones and listens. And it is a interview between her father and a Hispanic gentleman, a miner from the ghost town of Terlingua, because it was an old mining town back in the day. And he's 
talking about a strange experience he had in a, a traumatic experience he had as a kid uh, seeing these lights out in the desert and he has a close encounter. And so what Alex, the main character, decides to do is that she's going to rent a car and she's going to go on a cross-state road trip a thousand miles across the state out to Terlingua to discover the truth. And she's listening to the tape as she goes. Strange synchronicities start to happen along the way. I don't want to get too much into the plot because I could give it away pretty quick. (laughs) Basically, she starts to make the same path across the state that her father did back in 1978. And some very weird synchronicities start to happen and strangeness. And suddenly she finds that she's actually in danger for making this journey. But, you know, she's she's gone too far. She she has to see it to the end. And, and of course, the end of the movie is her encounter with the ghost lights. It's a big moment that I won't reveal. People will just have to wait for that one. Um, I got it. Yeah. Well, sorry. <laughs> you know what? You know what? It's going to be done and it, well, it's going to be edited about a month and a half. So I will send you a link that only you can see. You'll have a special viewing. <laughs> that's awesome. See, that's Everyone all, else will have to wait. That's what I love about doing this. Seth Breedlove sends me all his stuff beforehand too. <laughs> oh, so cool. Man, I, I love Seth's films. I, I just watched The Mothman Legacy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, super good. Lyle Blackburn, he's actually a, a Dallas guy, so I've hung out with him, the guy that does all the narration for those. Anyway, very inspiring what they're doing. So we're going to talk a little bit later in the show as we get closer to the end so we can keep it fresh in people's minds on what you need them to do to help you out here. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about for people who are unfamiliar with the Marfa lights, what that actually is or what people believe that it is. Sure. So the Marfa lights have been happening in the small town of Marfa, Texas. Um, It's kind of an arts community. I wouldn't say it's like Austin. It's kind of like if a Burning Man sort of put on like cowboy boots and descended (laughs) into a little desert town out in the middle of nowhere. It's a college town, university town, I I think. Yeah, just this cool artsy. For more than 100 years, people have been seeing these strange lights that appear across the Mitchell Flat, which is used to be a million years ago. It used to be the bed of the ocean, but it's just this flat plain that exists along the highway there, I-67, going out to Marfa. You won't always see them. They have a viewing station that you can, you know, go it's got like a little covered area and you can kind of uh, as a good view of the Mitchell Flats they're not always there they're not reliable it's not like clockwork like you just show up and the Marfa lights are definitely there but if you show up at the right time what you'll see is these it's hard to guess how far out they are Um, there's not a highway over there it's just desert for 50 60 miles and they're, they're these little dots of colored light and they appear just after sunset usually starts out with just a few of them one or two and they're like blue or red or orange and they kind of start to hover and then they'll split and become multiple lights they kind of like arc and dance and they make like corkscrews and figure eights they'll just kind of inexplicably just dance around and then they'll fade away after a couple hours usually by like nine o'clock something like that they're they're gone you know people have been surmising for generations as to what these could be oh like uh, ut dallas they sent a team of students out there several years ago to do a investigation they claimed that it was actually headlights 
which if you've been out there and you you've looked that direction there there's no highway over there so um i don't know how they came up with that conclusion uh they were using lasers and like high-speed cameras they said that it was headlights i don't know about that now, and there's lots of stories to say that it's exactly the opposite of that, that it definitely couldn't be headlights. Because the first sighting was actually back in 1883. And that was, I mean, what was that? 30, 40 years before there were automobiles out. And and I can tell you about that story if you would like. Um, Robert Ellison was a 16-year-old cowboy living out there, you know, doing the the cowboy thing, range life. He put it in his memoir and it was kind of vague what he wrote down. And then later he kind of clarified verbally to his family what he experienced. But he was out there on the Mitchell Flat one night and uh, there's a mountain range, the Chinati mountain range that's 50, 60 miles in the distance. Back in those days, the Chisos Apaches were still occupying the area. And so, you know, it wasn't uncommon to see campfires from, you know, Indian fires from, from the Chisos off in the distance. So he looked out towards the mountains and he saw these little orbs of light that he he just assumed must be Apache fires. But what he described is over the course of the evening, it appeared and they were like on the mountain, you know, uh, so they're elevated. And what he described is that it appeared as if the mountain moved forward as if the points of light got closer to him and so it was a strange effect you can kind of imagine what that would look like later on of course you know more people started to experience the marfa lights he was able to say well you know we saw these things all the time and i didn't realize it then but that was the marfa lights that i was seeing they weren't lights on the mountains they weren't campfires they were hovering lights in, you know, it wasn't the mountain that moved. It was the lights moving towards me. For a long, long time, his family still lived in Marfa. And uh, I think he didn't pass away all that long ago. It was, it must have been like the 40s or 50s. But uh, his daughter, who has since passed away, has been recorded as, you know, talking about what he experienced. And that really is considered the first sighting of the Marfa lights. You know, of course, no headlight. What could it have been hard to say and so people really did see the lights like over and over again for 100 years up until present day uh, back in world war ii pilots were seeing them people trying to dive bomb the lights and chase them which of course they can capture them all the way up until now where people are out there with like high-speed cameras trying to document these things and the conclusion really is that it's inconclusive they have no idea what these are so so it's my understanding you guys had a, a little situation or like an encounter when you were filming. What happened there? Yeah, I know that that was that was really crazy. So we filmed. Um, we started out in Dallas. We filmed on the road to Odessa, which is like oil country, you know. And then we went to Alpine, which is you know another university town there. And we were we were actually filming up on what they call Big Hill, which is this. It's a big hill outside of Alpine, <laughs> <laughs> aptly named. Uh, yeah, uh, very scenic though, very pretty. So it was getting late. It was like five or six. We had just wrapped up filming a a big tentpole scene of the movie there on Big Hill. We had a scene that was going to be a driving scene that we wanted to get along I sixty seven along the Mitchell Flat and headed into Marfa. But we need a little bit of sunlight, like just a little rim of light where the sun is just dipped beyond the horizon. And so we're rushing to get there because it's getting super late. Stupid me, I forgot. To 
to take off the fake license plate on our picture car. You know, and you don't want to show people's real license plate in a movie. Right. So we, we had fake ones. And I, I'm sure I was speeding. And we're headed through the dark. There's a little bit of sunlight left. I, you know, I know that if we get there and just start filming immediately, it's going to be fine. And then siren lights turn on and a cop catches us pulls us over mostly for the fake plates it's really close to mexico so there's a lot of like drug trafficking sure. and stuff that goes on there you know we tell him what's going on and he realizes we're not a threat but he just sees that we're in a hurry so he just decides to take his sweet ass time pulling <laughs> us over <laughs> and you know i was like what, what can you do you just have to like roll with it so by the time He's done with us, and we get out to where the rest of our crew is waiting on us out at the Marfa Lights viewing station. It's dark, like just pitch black, and the scene is done. You know, there, there's no way we're going to film it. And I am just like totally pissed. I had a hat on, and I just like got out of the car and just like threw it into the night. I was just like so angry. You know, I, I took a moment to like catch my breath, and uh, my actress, Katriva Phillips, who plays Alex, the, uh, the journalist in the film, she... Uh, steps outside the car to take a smoke break and she um you know i picture her in my mind cinematically she takes a drag and she looks off from the horizon she goes tim what's that and i look and there they are the marfa lights and it, it really is it's an incredible chance because like i said they're they don't show up every day you could go out there for two weeks and not see them and oh, sometimes wow. you could show up and they're there every night, you know, like you really can't like plan it. Followed where she was pointing and out there in the direction they say that you're supposed to look is this one dot. It was kind of, it was orange. It was pretty big. And it was just kind of, just kind of hovering just back and forth a little bit. We almost thought, man, maybe it's like someone has a ranch out there and that's like a, a light, you know, near their house. But then it starts like zipping across the, the desert and then it splits into two. And suddenly there's two of them and they're in tandem going back and forth and making this little figure eight motion. And then suddenly those split and there's four of them and they're, they're both making, you know, this four of them all making the same back and forth motion. And then there were six and suddenly they all just like broke off in split directions and just started wisping and dancing across the sky. They became uh, blue. Uh, one of them was red and uh, they did this for like a half hour and we're just sitting there like dumbfounded. And, you know, I'll tell you, like some people get weirded out. Some people like get this kind of sense of like dread from seeing the lights. Honestly, after this like really like stressful experience and I was like so pissed that we had just missed this scene that I thought was going to be so important. Seeing those lights just totally diffused it all. And it was it was magical. And I'll, I'll tell you, I have no idea what that could have been. Definitely not headlights. Headlights, I, how could they do that? You know, they right. went up and down and side to side. And after a half hour, it's like it all went in reverse and those six lights became four and they became two and became one. And then it just kind of flickered off into the dark like it had were, never been there. Were you able to capture any of that on film? Uh, no, we tried. We had already kind of broken down our camera. So I tried to use my phone. It just wasn't light sensitive enough there's a guy named james Bennell who, who wrote a really good book on the marfa lights but for about 10 years he set up cameras there at the viewing station and filmed them on like a daily basis and the only way he could capture them was with this very like high-tech low light like laser enabled cameras so you can kind of get a good image of them with like a normal movie camera but if you want something that really like shows the density and the size of the lights you've got to have pretty high-tech cameras so and that, that kind of adds to the mystery it's kind of like you can only experience by 
by looking at it, you know, that was crazy. I've never seen anything like that in my life. I chase th- those sorts of experiences and it just kind of right. <laughs> fell into our laps, you know? <laughs> so you make this movie, it's during COVID. Needless to say, there are a lot of, uh, of the big networks and stuff. They put everything on pause because of COVID. Right. And this was the time that, that you had to be able to do it. Give me an idea of what kind of challenges that you had to go through to make this movie, obviously with everything that COVID threw at you. Yeah. Well, you know, and like you say, all of Hollywood shut down and rightly so, you know, we, we, especially in like March of 2020, you know, there's so much unknowns about how COVID works and, you know, they really took their time to like develop a game plan and the game plan they developed really is not cost effective on an indie scale. You know, it's, it's like pay all your actors uh, their full rate for two weeks while you put them up in a hotel room, which has got to be first class, while they pass, you know, like the incubation period, just to make sure. And then they don't go anywhere until you're done, which is great. Mm -hmm. But who can afford that unless you've got like, you know, $100 million. So therefore, you know, like production just stopped everywhere. And there's just, you know, you started to see Netflix like pulling out 90s films because their their catalog just dried up. And we're in the middle of this. And I saw it coming back then, back in March, that uh, we were soon to be in the middle of a major like black hole of good content. And that, you know, Netflix and Amazon and all these distributors are going to like, they need something because they, you know, even they can't like make it happen quick enough uh, for mm-hmm. the demand. And, you know, so that that was really what like inspired myself and my co-producer, who's also acts in the film. He, he plays the uh, the cowboy, the father, the journalist, John Francis McCullough. That, that's what inspired us to like act. I was like, OK, how can we make a film that's COVID safe? inexpensive that I can just pay for out of pocket for production using as few people as possible and still make it really cool. And so that's basically kind of where the idea came from. Like I said, we shot for 10 days, which is a insane schedule that I would recommend to no one. Yeah, I just didn't sleep for none of us slept for, you know, over a week. It was a lot of fun, but also just like draining is all hell. But uh, yeah, we shot for 10 days and then we, at most we have like seven people on set. For the majority, it was four people and that was including actors and myself. So I shot the film as well and even played a role in the movie which we can talk about later. Uh, Yeah, we got everybody COVID tested at the head. And then we just basically like we stayed in Airbnbs together and didn't see the world until we were done. You know, I mean, it it was very safe. No one got sick. uh, Thank God. You know, it's um, COVID tests can have false negatives, Mm -hmm. you know, so there was a risk there, certainly. But it kind of felt like to me... You know, like 2020, like really told me that, and it told a lot of artists, I hear this from a lot of artists, that it kind of pointed out like the the shortness of life and you've got to stop waiting for the right moment because the right moment will never come. So if you've got a dream, which my dream is to make a feature film, you know, more than that, make you know, whole career of it, but the, you better just go out and do it. And so it all became very simple at that point. And I was able to just say, okay, four people in 10 days, let, let's go do it. <laughs> you know, let's all stay safe, you know, and it was kind of weird because I hadn't really been in the room with more than like my immediate family for months. And suddenly I'm like hanging out with friends. So it was kind of like a little bubble against the yeah. uh, COVID apocalypse. You know? <laughs> it was a lot of fun, but totally insane. Um, I would probably never do it again. Um, you know, next time around, I, w- I would definitely 
take more time and uh, do it with a few more people, at least, you know, four people is like insane. You have like a skeletal crew that's a term in the industry. That's like 10 people. Mm-hmm. We were less than skeletal. So I don't know what that is. Like <laughs> a ghost. Partial, <laughs> partial skeleton. <laughs> yeah. So you went to some really cool places to film some places that have a lot of history, right? Like Terlingua. We talked about big Ben while ago, share some stories with me. Let's talk about first about Terlingua. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that place and a little bit of history and some, uh, I know that place is really haunted. So what do you, what do you got going on there? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been to that part no, of the world I've, before? I've been to Houston and that's it. Okay. Very different than Houston. You know, it, it looks a lot like New Mexico, you know, um, that kind of arid, dry desert. And it really is, I mean, it's kind of like my happy place. It's just breathtaking. You know, the it's a no light pollution zone. You can see the Milky Way on a clear night just brilliantly. You know, it's got these almost like it's the Chisos Mountains is the surrounding mountains around Terlingua. And it almost has like a Martian feel to it. It feels like another planet. Uh, it's it's crazy. Like the first time I was there, I went for a Day of the Dead festival that because it's a heavily Hispanic community. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a cool old cemetery, which we featured in the film. You know, I was, and they have this cool old bar that looks uh, called the Starlight that looks like something out of a Robert Rodriguez movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there sipping on tequila, looking out over the mountains. And I'm like, this just feels like the very ends of the earth. Like what's beyond those mountains? I don't know. You know, like we're we're at the end of everything here. And so, yeah, it's just super cool. Um, you know, historically, it is a mining community. I can't give you the exact date. Sometime in the late 1800s, they discovered cinnabar there, which is a red rock that you can use to form mercury. So it's like basically elemental mercury. And, and of course, mercury is extremely valuable. Um, so it became like overnight, like extreme hot spot for for mining so you you can imagine kind of like in uh california like these towns just popped up overnight Mm -hmm. and out there about the only building materials are rocks and they're still out there you can see the old ruins of these uh huts that the miners built but they're just stacked rocks with you know sometimes later on they added like a concrete foundation but a lot of them it's just like you know they maybe had some wood that they laid down and uh you know so today when you go out there you see these old cabins and then of course the mines there which they've thankfully actually graded over so you can't like fall into them i want to say they graded over them in like the 60s so there was a point where you could go out there and there was just like 500 foot vertical mine shafts that you could just look into and you know jump in if you wanted i guess (laughs) yeah it's uh, just lots of really cool history and you know over the years there's there's been a lot of legends of ghosts you know you can imagine uh, ghostly miners you know there are some legends of ghost lights out there it's not quite the stories that come out of marfa and you know of course the interpretation there is that these are miners like holding their lamps you know they got lost in the mines or maybe you know there's stories of miners dying from like opening up pockets of poisonous gas and getting asphyxiated explosions you know i mean you can imagine everything that could kill you in a mine basically i talked to talked to one guy when we were out filming actually and he told me this story he actually is like a little medical facility out there because it's you know the nearest hospital is like two hours away in alpine and he talked about one time he was walking home through the ghost town 
and uh, he looked out towards the cemetery and it was kind of, it was a pretty sunset. He uh, just thought he would take out his phone and take a, a pretty photo. Um, so he takes a photo and then he uh, goes back to his computer to back it up and he looks at it and he sees something strange, like weird. And he's just looking at the thumbnail. So he blows it up. This is what he claimed. He saw an entire family and it to him, it appeared to be like uh, some minors, their wives and children, uh, Hispanic heavily, you know, most of the minors were coming over from Mexico at that, that mm-hmm. point. He, he saw people in like sombreros and like sarapes, kind of just hazy standing out in front of the cemetery and so he thought you know okay this is really strange that definitely wasn't there i don't know what to think about this i'm just going to back it up to my computer and look at it later so he he copies it puts it onto his hard drive wipes the card comes back the next day and looks at the one that he copied and it's not there whatever image he saw which i guess was on the sd card you know uh, but before he copied it to his computer had the apparitions that he looked at it again afterwards and then they were just not there which is funny because i've heard multiple people talk about that like catching you know an apparition or something odd and they look at it on their camera or on the card but when they something about backing it up to the hard drive erases that i i can't recall somebody else told me a very similar story to that um but yeah, I know it was actually, it was a guy that took some photos out of the Marf Lights viewing station. He had a similar experience where he captured like an entity or some sort of strange anomaly in his photo that was there on camera. And then when he backed it up, it was gone. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just one story. Of course, there, there's all kinds of hang out at the starlight and talk to any of the locals for a little bit, buy them a few drinks. You'll hear a hundred ghost stories, you know? <laughs> Well, tell me a little bit about Big Bend, because that's not an area I'm familiar with. The Big Bend is a massive area in the kind of lower western corner of Texas. You know how the western border of Texas is made up mostly of the Rio Grande, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's squiggly. It's not a straight line. It really, you know, you can picture that kind of little like hook, kind of V or U-shaped hook at the bottom of Texas before you get to like... Mexico, basically. The Big Bend really is an area that goes all the way from there, almost all the way up to El Paso. So just in hundreds of miles of endless desert, largely, believe it or not, unexplored because it's so hard to make treks out there. You've got to really know where you're going. You've Mm -hmm. got to have like heavy duty expedition equipment and you have to have enough water because there's, you know, there's no water out that direction. You know, people all the time find new stuff out there. And it's funny thinking about that in the U.S. We think we've seen everything. And maybe at one point in time, somebody has seen every inch of the Big Bend. But because it's so vast, they never find it again. So it's like it gets discovered and then forgotten as soon as it was found. The stories that are around the Big Bend are just numerous, you know, all the way from La Llorona-esque stories and you know i'm sure your your viewers are probably kind of uh, familiar with the la llorona stories there's different versions of the la llorona stories that are very specific to big bend one of them is they call it one of the versions of those stories they call it the ghost of agua fria cliff agua fria cliff or mount it's right outside of alpine along the way to terlingua it's this very very kind of strange eerie you know like volcanic cliff it just juts up out of the earth the story goes is that a young Indian woman gave birth to a, a child under some sort of cursed 
cosmological time so you know the moon was in the wrong place the stars didn't align <laughs> a lot of this is like on some some pretty like racist indian tropes so take it take it what you will there but the story is is that basically her child is cursed and he's gonna come back as some sort of evil thing almost like the uh w- what is in the northeast oh, they talk about him the wendigo the wendigo almost like a wendigo right and so in order to spare her child this curse and also to spare her her people this car she she takes her baby to the top of aguafia cliff and throws him over you know hundreds of feet down to his death legend has it that you're there on a cold windy night you can still hear the sound of her wailing which is kind of the la llorona piece there a crying baby descending until it stops and it repeats almost like stone tape theory sort of Mm -hmm. thing where it's just it's just going over and over and over again there's ranchers that live right along agua free cliff and to this day they'll say yeah you know if you hang out there long enough you're you're going to hear the wailing woman of agua free cliff some other stories there's a really spooky story called the it's the legend of chief alsate I don't know if you've heard of this. It's a bit of an obscure history. The the Chisos Apaches that I mentioned earlier occupy that entire area from Alpine to Terlingua, uh, Lajitas, that, that whole swath of land around there. Something I forgot to mention, uh, Chisos, at least according to the locals, is an old Apache word that translates to ghost. So, you know, the, the Chisos Mountains, they're the ghost mountains. So, you know, just kind of more levels of like mystique to the area in the late 1800s chief alsate had a band of warriors and he was trying to stand up against the at the time mexican army that was trying to drive the apaches out and you can look it up on wikipedia there's a short section on this but basically they fought they were captured and taken to ohinaga which is the first mexican village across the border from Presidio, Texas. They were all executed there. And so the story goes is that his spirit treks across the desert, lighting fires to lead his lost people back to Trilingua in that area to lead them mm-hmm. home. And that actually is the ghost lights of Trilingua or the ghost lights of the Big Bend area that people say they see as, you know, these, they're like fox fires or St. Elmo's fire or will-o'-wisps is kind of the idea. It's like a version of that. They're certainly not seen as frequently as the Marfalites are. They're not dependable by any means. But I've talked to people that have camped out there in the Big Bend and you will see lights. You know that you're like the only person out there for like 200 miles any direction. So what are they? I don't know. They're uh, they're the ghost of Chief Alsate, Alsate's ghost. So Or uh, car headlights. <laughs> or car headlights. Who knows? <laughs> but it's weird when you're all alone, man, you know, out in the middle of the desert. That's not your first thought, you know? <laughs> right. All right, Timothy. So we told everybody that, that we were going to give them an opportunity to be able to help out with the movie. Yeah. Tell me what you need for our people to look at, what you need to finish up with the movie and how they can help. Sure. You know, as I mentioned, I paid out of my own personal savings for production. We spent about, believe it or not, only $7,000 for production, which is like what Rodriguez spent on like his first film, just like dirt cheap. You know, everybody's in this to just make an amazing film. You know, your average film costs like a million minimum, you know, (laughs) maybe 
maybe 500,000. That's considered ultra low budget. But I wanted to make sure that we could get there. Finishing the film is really important to me, getting production out of the way. So that being said, I pretty much like drained my own personal savings into the project already. So the money left remaining, which is about $15,000 is what we're estimating is to pay for a talented team of individuals I have here in the uh, Dallas area to help finish the film. So that includes an original score, friend of mine named Brandon Moss. You can check out, he's on SoundCloud, pretty much anywhere. He has a website. I can maybe shoot you a link later. Mm-hmm. Um, super talented guy that I've worked with for, for years. He's lined up to do an original score. We need to pay for sound mixing, which is mixing in all the sound effects and the music and making the dialogue sound perfect. And then special effects is also a major piece because this is a sci-fi movie. And, uh, you know, we show the ghost lights in the film. We show them up close and personal, which of course, you know, uh, no one's ever actually seen. Some people say they've seen up close and personal, but we we take some uh, creative imagining to uh realize that and then of course color correction which that's kind of a a weird thing to explain to people that aren't familiar with film but whenever you you shoot it looks pretty like flat and like low contrast and you've got to you know run that through a program with a professional to make it you know pop and bright and shiny and looking amazing (laughs) that's basically what we we need we're starting on february 15th on indiegogo and running for a month. We've got some super cool perks. So this is not like a GoFundMe where you just give me money and I say, thank you. This is you donate money to us and we give you something in return. So we've got like signed posters. We have some props used in the film. Probably the coolest perk that I'm really excited about is that we've got a whole bunch of old vintage, like from the 70s and 80s cassette tapes that we're going to record all the interview scenes because there's all these scenes that she's listening to in the film on tape of her father interviewing this guy. We're going to actually dub those to the tapes. And send those out and you know it's going to feel like a piece of evidence you know cool that's cool yeah and we've got a lot of other other cool stuff as well which you can go on the indiegogo and check out yeah you know and some of it is like special access at the premiere that we hope to have once uh, covid kind of settles down you know it's it's funny that you know when you get to post-production you think it's going to cost less than production but you know it's a it's because of the specialized talent that it takes to do some of these things, you know, like composing a score and doing special effects. And uh, they're, they're talented people that deserve to be paid for what they do, you know. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm way past my film school days where we all just work for free. We all have day jobs and we all have to right. pay bills. You know, we're not just living with our parents anymore. So <laughs> when you get the setup and the link for uh, people to be able to help out, I'll get that from you. Obviously, we'll post all that. Yeah. And hopefully that'd be coming at about the same time that this gets released. I think it should be the same day. It should be very close. Most of you guys out there listening, you're familiar with this. You might not be familiar with the uh, the Indiegogo name, but you've heard of Kickstarter, similar type situations. So it's just uh, a different company doing along the same things. And, you know, we've got, uh, we've got some friends, uh, David Flora and, and, Derek Kays from Monsters Among Us, they actually mm-hmm. uh, have came on and, and they've got their own thing going. And we had some people uh, kick into that and help out a little bit. So cool. they're familiar with the concept. I appreciate it. It is a is a hard game being a filmmaker because it's something between a job because it really is because you have to like, you know, you work 
our longest day shooting the film is like 18 hours. And, you know, most people shoot uh, like 10 hours. That That's like maximum, you know. But when you're on the indie you know, side of things, like you just shoot until you're done. So it, it is kind of like this mix between like work and like playing pretend, you know. You know, and it's you get emotionally invested. It's it's a passion project. It is art and entertainment and a business and um, help the, the audience that want to see. And I, I really feel like your audience, you know, people that enjoy like the X-Files or... Uh, interstellar or anything having to do with the Fortean in the strange you know this is a movie for you because it's a mystery that it's about how we get caught up in mysteries and how those mysteries become obsessions and those obsessions reveal you know things that uh maybe we weren't thinking about if you're not into that it is a family story between a father and daughter and about the connection you know, that, that we all feel to people that have passed away. You know, it's it's the reason people use Ouija boards, you know, except right. in this case, she's using a, uh, a cassette tape to reach across the void, you know. Is there a website where they can learn more about the project? Our company is called Spectrograph Films. That's S-P-E-C-T-R-O-G-R-A-P-H, like the spectrograph that can be used to like document the color of stars spectrographfilms.com slash the ghost lights if you wanted to look at that or you could just go to the web page and then click on films and then find the, the home page there what's next let's say you get the film you get all the post-production done on it mm-hmm. where do you take it from there i mean obviously you've got a game plan you know it's it's kind of a weird thing right now in the film distribution world, uh, COVID. Let me say that Hollywood has operated on like wheeling and dealing and schmoozing in person. You know, the way movies, especially indie films, have been sold in the past is that you get into play to a film festival or a film market like Cannes or American Film Market in uh, Los Angeles. You get some meetings, but then you go to the bar and you have a couple of martinis and there's the guy and he's feeling good that you talked to earlier because he's had a couple of drinks. And then you make the deal right there. And that's how the movie ends up in theaters. We're not doing that anymore, or at least we didn't last year. 2020, everything was canceled for good reason. What we're banking on is that with the vaccine and Hollywood kind of, and all these film festivals really kind of like understanding like how to adapt, that film festivals will come back fall of this year. I know for a fact that all the genre film festivals, and that's like sci-fi, horror, all of those film festivals uh, are opening up right now for deadlines, which means they're pretty confident that they're going to go on mm-hmm. starting in September through the end of October, early November. So that's our game plan is get into the film festivals, make the circuit. And, you know, I, I eventually want to see this in theaters, you know, and almost certainly it's going to be on Amazon Prime at, at some point. You know, that's kind of the right inevitability. It will get there. This is a big epic movie, even though we shot it in 10 days with only four people. It's set against these 10 commandments level backdrops of the massive desert and the beauty and the stars, uh, the Big Bend in West, West Texas. So despite all that, it is cinematically epic. You know, I, I just can't imagine not seeing it in theaters. That's the goal. We'll, we'll see what happens. We will have a public screening probably somewhere in Dallas, definitely at some point that will be kind of a special premiere that maybe we can talk about later down the road. Awesome. Well, Timothy, it's been a pleasure having you on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. This has been fun. Obviously, best of luck in the future. We'll help you any way we can. Cool. Thanks.